IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about Travis Scott, the state of mainstream hip-hop, and the David Bowie country song. Yes, that's a real thing. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He wishes the new Wilco album was called Yes Chef, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? It's a very daring move by Wilco to reference the show that they are most closely associated with. I mean, is this the bump they need to really uh, get into the 40-something Hulu-watching demographic? I think it just might work out for them. I actually, I hope they actually make a B-Sides compilation called Behind. Uh, that could be that could work out well for them too. <laughs> so we should explain for those who aren't who didn't hear the news that there, there was a new Wilco album announced this week. It's coming out at the end of September. It's called Cousin, and there was speculation online that perhaps the album title is a reference to the popular FX show The Bear, which of course uses a lot of Wilco songs on the soundtrack. There's also this thing where uh, you've got Carmi and you have Richie, like the cousins who call each other cousin. Mm-hmm. It's like a recurring thing on the show. So it just seemed like, oh, wait, is this Jeff Tweedy tipping a cap to this TV show that has played a lot of his songs? And I just have to say, um, I did do a little bit of reporting on this. I reached out to someone in the Wilco camp and I was <laughs> like, is this a deliberate reference to the bear? And this person said, are you joking? Do you really think Wilco would do that? Yes. So, it would, well, that's, I mean, I don't actually think they did that. But at the same time, they did call an album Star Wars. And they put a, like a cat on the cover. Mm-hmm. And there's an album called Wilco the Album. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have some wacky album titles. Uh, especially like in the last, you know, seven, eight years. Uh, so... I don't know if they would be... Like, Jeff Tweedy, I don't know if he would be that obvious. But, I don't know. I actually think it is credible, but this person made me feel stupid for just <laughs> asking the question. So now I'm doubting myself. So maybe it was like a fake-out. Maybe this actually is... You know, it's like multi-dimensional chess here. Maybe this actually is a bear reference. And so I don't know. Yeah. At any rate, it's an accidental reference, you know, for sure. Yeah, I... I... I mean, I think there is plausible deniability. I think it would be more plausible deniability if this was their first album since, uh, you know, say 2019 or what have you. But like, I mean, they put one out last year. This seems, this seems like for a certain type of guy, the equivalent of Twitter saying, you know, if Gucci Mane was still on his shit, he would make an album called Wappenheimer. Um, And he actually went ahead and did that. I don't know if it's real, but I think he made the cover. Uh, for that so you know well for a band like Wilco I think you have to integrate some degree of fan service so even if it's just like the possibility that they um, you know are referencing their omnipresence in the bear it's fun for the fans Um, now you know hopefully there will be a interview where like Jeff Tweedy says exactly what you have which is like oh are you joking and that'll be the end of it um, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited for this. I mean, do you think that like the association with the bear has, uh, I don't know, given Wilco a little bit of a bump 
in terms of like them being perhaps seen as like a major player in the narrative or is it just like I don't know, like painting over like it, it like the the bear fan base and the Wilco fan base is like a circle rather than a Venn diagram. Yeah, I mean, the thing I admire about Wilco and I've said this before that when I think about like my own career, I model my career after Wilco. I look at them as a role model, not only because they're because they're from the Midwest, but because <laughs> they seem to be in this bubble where they just do what they do and occasionally they bubble up and they right. become a topic of conversation then they fade away and then five years later they bubble up again but they're always chugging along they always have an audience and it doesn't really matter what else is going on in the world and i just think that's such a great way to have your career this just seems like another instance of like them bubbling up you know like with the bear it's giving them some buzz this new album is produced by kate Lebon, which is a departure usually they're you know, working in-house with their records, and mm-hmm. now they're bringing in another well-known indie artist to produce them as sort of like their version of like St. Vincent <laughs> producing Slater Kinney, right. you know? This is the, uh, the dad rock equivalent of that. And it'll be interesting to see how people talk about this record in light of that. I saw some conversation online where people were saying like, oh, this, this, sound, this song... Sounds different, like the single that came out this week. Sounds different. I can tell what Kate LeBon is doing. I don't know if it was that discernible to me, uh, especially coming off the last couple records. Uh, Cruel Country, actually, I think, was a real strong record. Mm-hmm. It was, it's like my favorite record that they had done probably since The Whole Love, so like in about a decade. Uh, not to dismiss the records they did in the 2010s. I like those records, too, but... Um, there's a little bit of a misnomer with Cruel Country that I think people talked about it being like an alt-country record, <laughs> like they're going back to being there. Right. And it's not really that. There are, you know, there's you know maybe more pedal steel on that album than there had been on a Wilco record in a while, but it's not really a country record, despite the title. Um, and I don't know, I what I've heard of the new record is it feels like an extension of what they've been doing on the last couple of Albums. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, that makes me excited because, you know, like Cruel Country was Wilco being Wilco. And I think even just like the presence of Kate LeBond like makes me, I don't know, may, maybe like makes it like, view it just the slightest bit differently. Um, but, you know, when you brought up like Wilco being a um, model for, you know, one's career, I'm thinking about... Um, uh, uh, interview I did today with uh, Chris Farron, he mentioned uh, Matt and Kim being his model for a good career for the very same <laughs> reasons and Murder by Death, which is that, you know, they were like part of the narrative. They were part of the zeitgeist for a little bit, but they just kind of keep chugging along and doing their thing. And I think that's really all we can hope for. You know, Wilco is very... Um, aspirational in that regard you know it's like not like i see wilco on stage and think damn man i want to be i want to be just like jeff tweedy or like the other guys in the band whose names escape me because i'm not sure if they're in them anymore uh it's just like yeah that's that, it's been the same lineup really though, like for like 20 years okay. yeah yeah they've been they've been very this is Nils like Klein, this version of yeah. wilco he, he's oh yeah still, he's still and in there michael jorgensen pat sansone oh, i mean obviously john, john starrett's been in there you know forever right uh yeah i mean this this wilco i mean th- that period like where they were like a different band with every record pretty much ended uh after uh a ghost is born like that like the band that plays on kicking television is the band that has been wilco for 
you know, since 2005. Well, that's aspirational too. You know, at that age, you want like your core group of like four friends that you're going to ride it out with. Like you're probably not, in, you know, you don't want to go like, I don't know, join a kickball league or some bullshit to, you know, start meeting new people. So Wilco, very aspirational. Shout out to them. Keep doing your thing. <laughs> There's nothing too. Like, you know, there was this period where Wilco was the band where if you didn't like indie rock, you would make fun of Wilco. Like there's right. always like one band like that where for a while it was Mac DeMarco. Uh, the National. Who would it be now? Yeah. The National now was that Big band. Thief? Would you say it's Big Thief? It's probably Big Thief. Yeah, like yeah. if you don't like indie rock, you throw up a photo of Big Thief and you, and you make some jokes about hats and, you know, half-naked people kissing and hugging each other like that exploring kind of thing. each other's bodies and whatnot. yes exactly <laughs> uh, and wilco was that band for a while but it, you know again they just do what they do and they move through that period and now i feel like for 25 year olds who like classic rock wilco was like the grateful dead basically at this point mm-hmm. like just like a long-running band they have a great history uh they're they, they seem unimpeachable like they haven't really done anything that you would be embarrassed by you know maybe you like some records better than others but you know jeff tweedy is a pretty admirable person um and they also have that very tumultuous period early on in their career that maybe lends them some romance and in a way like that will go ended yeah, you know, yeah. So you have like the romantic Wilco and then you have like the long running Wilco. They can be like a couple different bands at the same time. It's a very interesting phenomenon with them. Um, we, we love Wilco here. We, we yeah, really yeah. do. It. We fucking We're, love Wilco. Big surprise. Um, <laughs> let's make a hard left here away from Wilco <laughs> to talk about Travis Scott. Uh, his fourth record, Utopia, came out last week. It's been the album that I would say, certainly it's the most popular album in America right now. I think that's fair to say. Definitely the one that people are talking about the most. And it's interesting. You know, I want to talk about this album with you. But there's also a sort of a, a tangential conversation going on. Or not tangential, like a parallel conversation. Right. With the conversation about the record. There's also like a larger conversation about the state of hip-hop right now. And it's interesting because, you know, you and I, in the era that we came up in as music critics, it was just always a given that there would be at least a couple big tent event rap records every year. You know, whether it was by Jay-Z or by Outkast or by Kanye West or by Lil Wayne or, you know, just go down the line, you know, the odd future people, uh, how the creator, you know, there was always an album that, seem to capture the zeitgeist both of the commercial world and the critical world. And it seems like lately, those kind of rap records are hard to come by. And I just want to say right away, I'm not going to be making... I'm not just asking questions about the popularity of rap or if like if rap is fading in any way. Because there's plenty of evidence to suggest that a lot of people are listening to hip hop in 2023, but like these kind of event albums, you know, like, like the kinds that Drake was delivering and, you know, like in the last several years, all that. I mean, is it fair to say that like, like a record like Utopia, it seems like kind of a rarity right now. Yeah. And I think that's probably why we're talking about it right now to begin with. I mean, it probably will be the number one uh, album in the country. 
but you're, you're, I think you're alluding to this existential dread that I see kind of hovering off the rap discussion right now that like rap is falling off as a cultural force because I don't think it's produced a number one song in uh, the past year. And, you know, you look at the charts uh, at like Morgan Wallen and Jason Aldean are dominating. And so it's so it's so funny to me because for as long as I've been alive and like following the rap narrative, you know, much more so as a younger person than I am now, there was never a con- it was always a concern. It's like, is rap too popular? It's like, you know, we're getting away from the roots and you know, the roots, you know, the actual group or like, you know, the roots of hip hop itself. There was a lot of hand wringing about like, whether rap was too popular and now it's like, yo, it's not popular enough. And I think there's maybe some, you know, there's some credence to that. Um, a lot, like there are very, very popular rap records. Um, and you know, there are a lot of, uh, bigger artists that are just coming up, you know, like ice spice. If she ever puts out like an album album, I'm sure that'll be a big deal. But, um, you know, as far as like for us as critics, uh, we've mentioned this on the pod before, but like how, just to be part of the discussion, there would be albums like, you know, a Drake album or a Kanye album or even to a certain extent, a future album or, you know, Kendrick, uh, obviously. Um, but Utopia, that is <laughs> it, it's very popular. And I don't I, I always thought like his critical acclaim was like very, um, uh, very tenuous, let's just say. I think that with uh, the previous album, Astro World, most people would say like, yeah, okay. He's like not really saying anything, but it's just so enmeshed in the culture. You kind of have to acknowledge it. And what I've seen so far from Utopia is it's a, it's, it's a phenomenon similar to like chance the rappers, the big day. I'm not saying this album's going to flop in the same way, but it hasn't gotten the same reception. And like every single criticism that I've seen of Utopia was like very true of Astro world as well. It's just that, like, the culture has shifted. This person hasn't. And, um, you know, I actually listened to Utopia. I gave it a shot. And um, it's, like, one of those things where uh, I don't mind blustery rap blockbusters. I fucking love them. Um, But, you know, I think there's, like, a difference between, you know, like, I'm the best rapper alive or, like, you know, um, or, like, I am, like, uh, you know, like, we're, like, the godfather or whatever. But, like... What I think about with Travis Scott and ASAP Rocky and similar people, like the whole narrative around it's like, yo, man, this is like boundless musical scope. They're changing the culture, man. Like this is this is like totally like a paradigm shifting thing. Like that's what they bring to the table. And you listen to it and it's like, okay, this person likes the most popular Afrobeat songs and like Tame Impala or whatever. It's more or less just like the top line of like Coachella put on a rap record. And again, Maybe for, like, someone who was, like, reading Complex Magazine at 16 rather than Pitchfork. Like, this is their equivalent of, like, the last Big Thief album. It seems to be because there's been, like, you know, some negative reaction to that review or just the uh, fading critical, um, you know, the fading critical uh, fortunes. Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the top line of Coachella being a reference point for Utopia. It's also, like, another reference point are, like, Big Tent rap records of the past. Like, the, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a uh, the music blog No Bells. They they had a tweet. Yeah, shout out to them. Where they broke, they were breaking down a bunch of songs from Utopia, and they were tracing the origins of of the songs. And I guess this is this, this wasn't like a hundred percent authenticated, but apparently whoever did the reporting on this has been in touch, like with leakers, uh, you know, in his camp, and they were able to trace like where some of the music 
originally came from on that record. And a lot of those tracks are based on music that was supposed to be on Kanye West records, like going oh. back to Yeezus, apparently. Jeez. But like a lot of stuff that, you know, was maybe in consideration for Donda or God's Country, like those records. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, because I've seen Yeezus brought up as a comparison for this record. Right. And it seems like there are there's literally music on the record that, like, could have been on Yeezus, you know? And mm-hmm. Yeezus, of course, being an example of a record that just totally dominated culture when it came right. out uh, in a way that you're not seeing rap records do to the same degree right now. And it made me think about, it, I'm going to run this by you, you could tell me if I'm <laughs> totally off base, but I wrote a column for Grantland about a decade ago. Hell um, yeah. Writing about, I was writing about Mastodon, I think, and I was talking about... <laughs> I thought you were about to say Yeezus or something, which we could have done in 2013, but... Oh, I, I, oh, I wrote about Yeezus, for sure. Oh, wow. Everyone wrote about Yeezus in 2013, but um, <laughs> I was talking about metal and hard rock and how those two genres do not exist really in any meaningful way as like mainstream music. They didn't really in 2013, and I think that's doubly true now, uh, 10 years later. And that seems a little strange if you're a person like me who came up in the 80s and 90s when really like the biggest bands in the world were metal, hard rock, or like adjacent to those scenes. Mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Def Leppard, ACDC, Motley Crue, all of the grunge stuff, uh, mm-hmm. up through new metal. You know, if you wanted to be a big band, you really had to have some sort of hard rock or metal aspect to what you were doing. And what happened in that genre is that you look at metal bands now, like they're still popular metal bands, but they are catering to a metal audience. They're not trying to cross over. They're not doing like the Def Leppard thing where you hire Mutt Lang and you produce a song like Pour Some Sugar on Me that people who have no idea who Iron Maiden is, like they're going to love that song. Doesn't matter. Like, because it, it's, it's a metal song, but it's also a pop song. And at some point, like the best metal bands stopped trying to do that. Because it was like, we live in a different world. You're better off talking to your base rather than trying to be broad. And I just wonder, do you think there's something like that happening in hip-hop? You know, because I'm not going to claim to be a hip-hop expert at all. Like, I have not Dang. followed the genre <laughs> really at all for at least like five or six years. And, you know, part of that is getting older. Part of that is I just don't have the time to commit to following the genre that seems increasingly insular and Byzantine. And like, if you aren't enmeshed in the world, it seems like it's harder to comprehend what's going on. I'm still a person who, if there's a big hip hop record that is crossing over, that people are talking about that breaks through, like I'm going to check that out, but I'm not someone who's going to burrow deep down into the scene at this point. And it just seems like, you know, this might be another example of a genre progressing to the point where you're speaking to the base and it's less interested in speaking to a pop audience. Like, does that make any sense at all to you? It makes sense whether or not, like, it's, like, actually the case. Like, I think, you know, a younger person might need to talk about it. But I do, I do like, look, we're, we're in a spot right now where neither of us are going to be able to write about a rap album. And that's, you know, that's been true for a while. But... You know, even people I know who like rap, you know, are much in it. They talk about like how the best albums or the best artists of the past year are like kind of super regional, you know, Um, and it's like specialists rather than 
uh, big tent type people like Travis Scott, you know? So I think there's truth to it. Um, I think maybe we're just in a transitional phase. Um, but yeah, I don't like, cause I'm like wondering like who could come back and I don't know, make an album that really, uh, organizes the culture around it. You know, like Cardi B hasn't released a new album since 2018. Um, but has the culture moved on? I, I don't know, but it's, I, I think it's fascinating to see people reckon with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are at a point, you know, there's been all, there's been a lot of coverage of this that like you know, people are talking about the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Oh, right. Year. Yeah. And how, if you put that on the rock spectrum, that's like 2005. That's, that's around when like rock music turned 50. If you want to mm. say rock music started in 1955, some people might disagree, but it's about around that time. And what you saw at that point was rock music, I think, reaching a level of cultural saturation where you become so ingrained in music that you kind of start to disappear a little bit. And I and I ask and I think there's something similar maybe happening with hip hop at this point because hip hop has so permeated every kind of music that you can have elements of that and not really be hip hop. Like you yeah. mentioned Morgan Wallen, for example. You know, he is, you know, the biggest star in country music right now. There's there's definitely a hip hop influence on his music. And he's you know, I mean he's collaborated with rappers, but right. no one would ever like really say that he's anything but you know, this mulleted country singer. Uh, we're going to be talking about someone in a minute from the country world who is literally lifting a guitar riff from a rock classic. And his song sounds like a rock song, but he's classified as country. Right. So, you know, I think hip-hop, unlike rock music, has been able to maintain its cultural identity and purity mm -hmm. uh, much longer you know, I think rock was just got diffused much quicker than hip hop has. But at some point, like it's that's got to break down a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, you can't. I mean, because all genres take this path. And again, it's not saying that oh, the music's bad now or it's not popular. It's just it's it's in middle age. You know, it is an old genre at this point. And I don't know. It just makes me think too about like what is going to be the next genre. You know, there hasn't been a next genre, yeah. really. In a way that like, you know, if you want if you want to say rap usurped rock is like is it just pop music usurping rap at this point? I I, I don't know. Cuz I think one of the things that gets mentioned when there's this, you know, uh these this like um existential dread about hip hop receding from the culture they bring up uh, you know, country or regional Mexican music as like the things that have really had great years in 2023. And, um, you know, I don't know if those are, I imagine those will be, you know, powers in the future, but I just want to like, I, I got to push back on one thing because you said that like, you know, rock was like middle age in 2005 thereabouts, you know, that was the year of the first clap your hand, say, yeah, album. I think rock was fucking thriving. So, well, uh, I, me too. Like I'm not, <laughs> look, I, I'm not saying that was not a diss. Uh, I, I, I never use middle aged as a diss at this yeah. point. It is always a term of endearment for me. Someone uh, still loves you. Boris Yeltsin released broom that year. How can we say that the genre was on its last legs? Well, but that is a point, though, that I think a lot of people would say that in terms of, like, the commercial 
relevancy of rock music, it really started to shift around oh, yeah, there. Of course. <laughs> you know, and because that's like when okay, so by 2005 you have new metal right. petering out, and then like the return of rock bands from New York, they didn't make the kind of impact that the media wanted them to make, and that mm-hmm. was becoming pretty clear by 2005, 2006. So. I don't know. Just thinking of it in those terms, it's interesting to think about hip hop being on that timeline. You know, what are we going to see? Could be they could totally take a different path, but I don't know. It, it it's a lot to expect of any genre of popular music to always be at the vanguard forever. Mm. You know, it just seems like that is impossible to happen. Uh, but at the same time, I I don't know what replaces it other than maybe what we're, what we're going to talk about next. Which is the rise of like pop music that just recycles old music. I mean, maybe that's the future at this point. I mean, it's like the present. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you put this song on my radar. Uh, because you know what? Like, it, it, we've, been do- we've been doing a lot of episodes lately where we haven't talked about like big new albums. I think there's you know, just been a, a kind of a dearth of interesting albums that have come out over the past month. But like, we've always had some shit to talk about because uh, I feel like you're more on the pulse than I am. And you find stuff like the, the David Bowie uh, country song. So help me like help our listeners understand what the heck you're talking about. And, and shout out to David Brown of Rolling Stone uh, right. who wrote about this this week. Yes. It's, there's a song. It's a new song. It's called young love and Saturday nights. It's by, <laughs> Japan singer. Well, yeah, it could be. No, it's by right. a country singer named Chris Young, who I'd never heard of. And this song, I'll just read from the story here uh, that uh, David Brown wrote for Rolling Stone. Uh, when country singer Chris Young heard a demo of a new song in consideration for his next album, he didn't look. He didn't need a rock encyclopedia to identify a key part of it. Quote: This song started, and I said, "That's the lick from Rebel Rebel." Young recalls, I immediately knew what it was. I wouldn't say I've exhausted David Bowie's catalog, (laughs) but that one is instantly recognizable. So Chris Young acknowledging, I haven't listened to Scary Monsters or or any of the rest of the Berlin trilogy, but I do do know this very famous uh, David Bowie song. So yeah, so basically this song, it takes the riff from Rebel Rebel, very famous guitar riff, and just replicates it. Doesn't do anything with it. I think. I think he slows it down a little. Not really. I. I, I maybe, don't think. Maybe. I think. I. I wasn't sure whether it was just like my computer not like having good Wi-Fi, but it sounded like it did like the the rap thing where you like chop and screw the riff and then you bring it back and it's like regular speed. I'll need. I'll, I'll need to do further research. Wow. Okay. Well, I know. I think there's like some banjo like underneath the guitar riff to <laughs> to make it a country song. Yeah, I think okay. If you're listening to this podcast, because obviously you are, if you heard me say this, mm. you need to you need to pause the show for a second and go to YouTube and look up the video for this song. It's it's called Young Love and Saturday Nights. This video is incredible. Like we were it's, talking about the Jason, something. Yeah, we were talking about the Jason Aldean uh, video, uh, the the the, you know, the racist one. Uh, <laughs> this is like. A benign version of that. It's it, it's yeah. taking a lot of the same cliches, but like taking out, uh, you know, the the sort of fascist imagery. <laughs> uh, but like Chris Young, he's this guy again. He's like a Jason Aldean in that he's kind of handsome, but he's just sort of like a regular looking guy. He's a guy. You know, yeah, he's like your brother in law, or you know, the guy at the office 
who uh, has to leave right after work because he's got a softball game. You know, he's, he's got like a, he's, he's, he plays in a beer league every summer. Uh, he has like this facial stubble <laughs> yeah. that it looks like it's spray tanned on. Like, yeah. like, like I don't know if there's like, in Nashville there must be some sort of like spray tan equivalent of facial stubble. That's what it looks like. He has like a white shirt on that looks like someone just ripped it out of like a package of Fruit of the Loom t-shirts. <laughs> it's like just stiff. Is it is it is it like a real t-shirt or is it like the one that Carmi wears on the bear that actually costs like eighty nine dollars? Uh, it probably does. I I'm not up on expensive t-shirts, so it may very well be that. But it's like in a it's like a spotless shirt, Got and uh, he pulls a Fender Stratocaster out of the back of his pickup. I didn't mention <laughs> he he comes out of a pickup truck, of course. Yeah, it should go without saying though. And it looks like he's never played a guitar before. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever seen that video of like Hulk Hogan. I'm a oh, real of American. Of course. Where Hulk Hogan's playing guitar, right. and it, it, it's very unconvincing, uh, <laughs> his guitar uh, stance. That's like Chris Young in this video. And I, I just want to read these lyrics. Just the most, the most stock, lazy country lyrics imaginable. Uh, he's got a Chevrolet that don't always run, and the radio never turns down. He's got a pedigree that's no good for nothing. No commas in his bank account. So you're saying he's a poor old country boy. Mm-hmm. But there's a girl at the hole in the wall where he plays. Don't take her eyes off the stage. She loves her southern drawl from north of Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that, but keep going. Okay. That's Silverado he got parked outside. Loves a cranking 89 Alabama. Is that a reference to like I the, think band? the band? I think it's a reference to the band. It has the band to be. Alabama. Yeah. Uh, kissing for an hour in the parking lot light. Here's to good girls who can't keep from falling for bad boys that their daddies don't like. Small towns that keep staying small. That's a tip of the cap to Jason Aldean there. Here's to old trucks, young love, and Saturday nights. Fuck yeah. How many cliches? I think I just <laughs> rattle off about 75 cliches. In like two verses. Yeah, this rock, this rocks, man. If you're gonna like do something like this, you gotta commit to the bit. And we talked about this on a previous episode about like one of the things that I admire the most about Nashville writing is how much fan service is involved with it. But I just I gotta talk about the southern draw from north of Atlanta because this hits me like you know like uh the south detroit line from don't stop believing (laughs) like do you know what's north of atlanta like i've lived in georgia like believe me i'm like not a expert on like uh you know this topic but i did live in atlanta and like my conception of like north of atlanta are like the suburbs like alpharetta and marietta like outside the perimeter shit like the place where they moved the atlanta brave stadium because you know (laughs) basically to stick to the city they wanted to make it inaccessible from you know the people who actually live in the inner city so again that's not something that i think you know the average person will will pick up on but like you know southern drawl north of atlanta it's clever songwriting also like as as we're talking about like as you say like you know he's just some guy the guy's name is like chris young which to me reminds me of like when little baby or young thug started coming up where i'm like that name's too generic they'll never they'll never be anything they'll be forgettable but like chris young is like so forgettable and yet so perfect it's absolutely the little baby of like pop country music yeah this i mean 
Yeah, how many like Youngs are there in Nashville? There's, there's probably like a Luke Young or a Colton Young yeah. or like a, a James Young. I mean, that, that, yeah, I feel like that is a common trope. Yeah, instead of like Young Lean, it's like <laughs> they reverse. They put the Young as the uh, surname in, we, in Nashville. I'm glad you brought up Young Lean. I mean, you know, what's your take on Drain Gang? You know, we never well, had that. <laughs> we never had I'm, that conversation. I'm talking. I'm talking out of my ass with that one. Young Lean um, is an actual person, though. <laughs> oh, I know that. I know okay, that. But good. like, I, but but in terms of like, you know, breaking down the discography, I'm I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, this is an example of something that has become pretty common, not just in country music, but in pop music, and I guess it's called. Uh, uh, like interpolation pop, like this idea that you take like an old song and you aren't just like stealing it the way that people used to do. You're actually like going to publishers who, you know, right now publishers are buying up all these old songs and repurposing them, uh, you know, putting them in different sort of venues to make money off of them in different ways. And this is like one way that, that they're doing it. And I don't know if this is something like where David Bowie's publisher approaches like a Nashville song factory and they're like, Hey, do you want to take the riff of rebel rebel and create a new song? And like you, you'll give David Bowie like partial credit for the songwriting and we'll make money and you'll have a good spine for a future pop hit. This is something that's happening, happening increasingly uh, more. And it's, it's funny because it's also happening in an era where there's all of these uh, questionable lawsuits right. that people are bringing up about, songs being ripped off and yet you have this like officially sanctioned plagiarism going on essentially it's a very it's a it's a strange thing yeah well first off i gotta just mention that like you know i gotta call myself out here that uh american football is honestly also kind of nick's rebel rebel but that's what they won't tell you um I, i i gotta just wonder of course you know because this is indycast we gotta think about you know the verve um, like Richard Ashcroft, like he hasn't made a dime for Bittersweet Symphony because like he took one unrecognized, like a part of a Rolling Stones song, which is unrecognizable except for their lawyers. And here you have, it's like, what if I paid up front, right? It's like this kind of like predatory loan sort of thing or whatever. It's like, do you want to pay, uh, you know, an upfront fee or do you want to pay on the back end? And I don't know. I'm, I'm just like very curious about where this is going to go because, it, I feel like there's like some sort of connection between, you know, the times where like hip hop had to have this question of like, are we becoming too popular, which was like the shiny suit era where, you know, Puffy and like all the other um, artists that were like sampling stuff wholesale were doing something quite similar to this. But at least they like changed the, the, the they changed the lyrics or something like that. Um, yeah. I wonder if there's like this. this like cabal of like you know purist country people who are going to make like you think hank done it this way part five billion or whatever maybe there's going to be this like parallel backlash of like you know um interpolating hank williams songs or something like that yeah i mean look i you know as you mentioned this isn't a new thing and it goes back much farther than even past the 90s i mean if you want to look at like blues and folk music there's like a long tradition of just take this line from a pre-existing song and write a new song around it or take this melody and put different lyrics to it. Like that's just something that was inherent to those scenes. And then, you know, you talk about the hip hop thing. Uh, 
I don't even want to say this band name because it's super offensive, and I can't re- I can't believe this group was successful. But like, do you remember there was a British DJ act from the late '80s called, and I'm just saying the band name Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers. Are you familiar with I this? I thought you were going to say Cherub Pop and Daddies. No, somehow you, you've you beat me on... Like, I feel like this is the sort of area where I should bring the expertise, but I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, they they had a bunch of hits. Huh. I mean, m- more so in England than here, but there was this one song... Uh, what was it called? It was called... Oh, Swing the Mood. And okay. it was like a... It just missed the top ten, apparently. But I remember this song being on the radio all the time. And basically what it was was they just took all these old 50 songs and they put them together. And it wasn't even like a it's mashup like the thing. the girl talk of its time? Sort of, but it was like a more primitive version of that. It'd be like, oh, play Chubby Checker, The Twist, for <laughs> a minute and then go into like Great Balls of Fire and then go into Johnny Be Good. And it'd be almost like a medley of old songs, but they were calling it a new song. Huh. And it was, I mean, they had like three or four like number one hits in England and they had some hits here. Uh, just super lazy. I mean, when you think about that, uh, Chris Young seems like a genius, you know, yeah. because at least he's taking this riff that's very recognizable, but he's putting it in a surprising context. You know, he, he gets rid of all that like artsy shit that David Bowie's talking about that I could give less of a shit about. And it's talking about the things that, you know, resonate with me as a American living in 2023, you know, it's like Chevrolets and Silverados listening to Dixieland Delight. I hope he takes Suffragette City and turns it into Peachtree City or something like that. There's, <laughs> I, I just hope he keeps doing it with David Bowie. Like, that would be the That'd coolest be shit. Yeah, like, I, I don't want him to, like, you know, dip into other catalogs. Like, I just want him to be the David Bowie guy. Yeah, instead of Space Oddity, it's like Chevy Oddity. Yeah, and, Chevy uh, Odyssey or whatever. <laughs> like that—that that is a Chevy, right? Oh, my. yeah, Chevy fucking Odyssey. We we are like mapping out the next ten years of Chris Young, man. You know, I'm afraid of Americans. I mean, it's pretty obvious what a country artist is going to do with that song. Oh but, my uh, god! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that Rolling Stone story it was, it was it ended by speculating on like, would David Bowie appreciate? this being done to his song and it noted that well he did some interview apparently once where he said that he likes every kind of music except country you know like that old cliche that people have i I like every kind of music except rap and country he actually said i'm paraphrasing here but he basically said like the one kind of music i've never really gotten into is country music uh so i'm sure he would be dumbfounded by this but maybe he'd be like you know, I'll, I'll do my David Bowie voice. You know, it's like more subversive. Oh, that's a terrible David uh, Bowie. Yeah, we, <laughs> that's a well, terrible. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm glad, glad we got Arch. Yeah, well, Chris Young did to David Bowie. Uh, Steve just did with uh, David Bowie's voice right there. So, oh. um, are we going to talk about Lizzo? I feel like we got to talk about this because otherwise people are going to think this is a banked episode. There was like literally nothing else happening this week aside from like Lizzo's uh, legal issues. Like, I I think we just kind of have to talk about it because look, on this podcast, we have talked a lot about like, are we going to like close the door on that early Trump, like 2017, 2019 resistance era and Um, You know, the fact that, like, both Lizzo and Donald Trump had legal issues on, like, the same exact day 
gives the possibility of like perhaps we are gonna like shut the door on this era completely and move on from it but wow uh, i don't know it, it's You're just like it's a, yeah it's a little it's a it's a little too convenient but i mean like beyonce apparently dissed her on stage the other day and it's like well she didn't okay well let's let's just explain like what's going on here for people okay. who haven't been keeping up with the lizzo news here and I'll read from the NBC News story about this. Three of Lizzo's former dancers have accused the singer of sexual harassment and creating a hostile work environment in a lawsuit filed Tuesday. They also allege that she pressured one of them to touch a nude performer at an Amsterdam club and subjected the group to an excruciating, that's in quotes, audition after leveling false accusations that they were drinking on the job. The dancers accused Lizzo, a performer known for embracing body positivity and celebrating her physique, of calling attention to one dancer's weight gain and later berating, then firing that dancer after she recorded a meeting because of a health condition. So, yeah, apparently, like, the gist of it is that these dancers are accusing Lizzo of being an abusive boss and also perhaps of being a boss who doesn't recognize professional boundaries. You know, <laughs> I, I think there was a story about them being in this Amsterdam club right. and someone having to eat a banana that was in a dancer's vagina. Something along. I think you're, I think that's like a mashup, but like all those <laughs> elements are like true. There was an Amsterdam strip club. There were like vagina projectiles. There was a banana somehow involved, but like, I don't know if it's like exact, uh, in two days, I'm sure the game of telephone will tell you that's actually happening. And Lizzo came out and like, look, when something like this happens, usually what someone says is something to the effect of, I respect the right of people. I respect the right of victims to speak out. Right. Uh, however, in this case, I feel that I am being unjustly accused. You know, you you couch it in like this language that isn't just calling these people liars but is also maintaining your your innocence. And Lizzo basically just came out and called them liars. Yeah. Like she like she kind of like she's playing hardball here with them. Yeah. Uh so this this is going to be interesting cuz like as you said, like Lizzo came out of this era like that late 2010s era. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 Trump resistance era. And I think if you're going to do the think piece, you need one more person. It's like the rule of 3. Like if someone else like uh who would have been another person that would have been from that era if they had had something happen that day? I'm like, I don't even want to think. Like, I'm just, I have to put myself back in that time. And I mean, look, it's probably like one of the people who like made one of those, um, you know, became like a, I mean, we've seen so many like DEI people step down and so forth. I mean, like, Who's I don't want to. the woman s- that like lip synced the uh, Trump speeches oh on my God. social media? You remember Fuck. her? Yes, what? I remember that person's existence, but the name escapes me. Like if she had gotten arrested for like stabbing someone to death, or if she no, if she did, if she did, if she did February, <laughs> if she did January sixth or whatever. Oh, like video, like, yeah, that's like, like video the, came out that she was there and that yeah. she was like with the uh, John Mouse and Ariel Pink and the lip sync <laughs> woman. Yeah, they were all fucking partying together. So yeah, the rule of three. I think you need that for a think piece. So we're missing one more, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously this is a bigger story because Lizzo has this empowerment image. I mean, a big thing that people played up in the in headlines about this that I think was a little misleading mm-hmm. was that she was body shaming people, right? Uh, as if that was like the most important thing. I mean, there's I mean, there's like 
charges of like false imprisonment yeah. in this. There's like some pretty bad accusations here. And, and look, innocent till proven guilty. These could be disgruntled dancers. We don't know. There is a preponderance of accusations though. So, you know, I guess we got to wait and see what happens here. But it seems like the thing that people are jumping on here with Lizzo is that she has a brand that is very positive and very, uh, again, it's, it's about empowerment and it seems like behind the scenes it's a little bit different. I've seen people compare her to Ellen, you know, yeah. Ellen. I don't know if, if, if people even remember this now, but she used to have a good image as like a nice person. And then all these stories about like a toxic workplace came out and she's never been the same since. And seems like maybe Lizzo is being set up for that kind of fall. I don't know. I, I, I think it's too early to say with Lizzo. Yeah, we're just we just gotta let this play out, man, because this yeah. is bad all around. <laughs> I mean that is but like you bring up that um resistance era right. of pop culture and it's it's just interesting to look back on that. And it doesn't seem like it's like an era that's going to age well. I think it's already been shown to have not aged well. Uh, a lot of the music and, and, and film and just conversation that was going on. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to to think about. Is is that all we have to say? Are we just like reporting this and we're not going to delve too deep at yeah, this point? Because yeah, I just remember like the one time like Lizzo got like a mediocre review from Pitchfork. She basically said music writers don't exist and or shouldn't exist. And so yeah, we don't want to like get in the crosshairs here because she is definitely coming out all guns blazing. All right. Well, another hard left here. I'm taking a lot of hard <laughs> lefts in this episode. I wanted to ask you about Semisonic. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're a, they're a Minneapolis band, right? Yes. Right. 90s alt-rock, Minneapolis Kingpin, Semisonic. They announced a new reunion album, their first album in 22 years. Do you have the title of the album? I don't have it. Ah, fuck. You, you I'm got... Googling it right now. <laughs> well, People need to know what the well, new well, album is called. It's, it's called... A Little Bit of Sun. It's called it's called little bit of sun. No, little no bit of sun. Little bit of sun. Sounds like a Chris Young album. It it really does. It's out November third. Uh, apparently, it features Jason Isbell and the mm. Four Hundred Unit. I don't know if the entire band is on there. It's like a you can have like two drummers and a bunch of guitar players. Uh, but Semisonic, yay or nay? Okay, so. I mean, we, you, you're probably thinking, yay, because like, oh, this song was from 1998. It was like semi-popular. Ian's probably loving this shit. Um, well, I, I mean, I, the reason we're talking about this to begin with is I'm just a little shocked that Semi-Sonic is back because, you know, Dan Wilson's got that Adele bag. You know, he, he's not he's not in this for a quick paycheck. I'm like wondering what he's like rolling up to the studio, you know, with the other two guys in the band and like... Look, I was impressed by the fact you know like the other dudes in Wilco. If you happen to, if you happen to know the other guys in Semisonic without googling it, like uh, I don't. I, mean, I know one of them wrote a book. Okay, I think the I think the bass player wrote a book. John Munson That's, and Jacob Slichter, which is you know these are very these are very good other guys in a alt rock band names. But um, so with with Semisonic, look, I graduated high school in 1998, so like closing time was just stupidly ubiquitous back then i don't mind it so much um singing in my sleep great song it's like one of those 
songs like, uh, you know, Jimmy Eat World's Sweetness or Say It Ain't So, where it's become like the de facto, oh, this is actually their masterpiece because it's not quite as ubiquitous as the big hit. But I'm just surprised that there hasn't been more semi-sonic talk because it seems like every single alt-rock band, particularly power pop that had like some modicum of success back then has become like reappraised. Like I've seen a lot of like super drag fans come out of the woodwork. Um, But I don't want to talk about Feeling Strangely Fine. It's a good record. I don't remember a hell of a lot of it. I need to talk about All About Chemistry, which is the one that came out after this. Steve, do you have any memory of this album? Uh, I I recognize the title. I it has like two test tubes fucking on the album cover. Um, yeah. It's got a song called Chemistry. It's like uh, that I remember playing on the alt rock station. Terrible song. It had Carol King on it too. Um, I don't know. I, I, I got to say like I'm like I, I, feel, I, I don't feel anything about Semi-Sonic. Maybe I just need to like go back and listen to uh, you know feeling strangely fine, but um, yeah, it's kind of odd for like a band that is seen as these like power pop savants that they made a record. Who after the second song, I cannot remember a fucking thing about it. <laughs> yeah, but you know they've got closing time, which is a standard, and I feel like that's a song that is in that one headlight zone where. It seems to bubble up every now and then, and people right. remember. Oh yeah, I love that song, and it's not the same as the kind of following that Third Eyed Blind has, right? In the sense that I think like a lot of younger people like that band, and now they're older, but they remember that from when they were teenagers. Semisonic to me always seemed like UCD core. You're gonna go if you, you well, would see that always in the UCD or before score. before this term was invented like they were like the adult contemporary alt rock band mm. you know that they were a band that uh you were really into if you were like 28 to 35 in 1998 i could see that like if you were in that zone i could see just loving semisonic because there was something about them that it was smart it was well written songs but they also had a certain maturity to them. Like they right. weren't writing a, about teenage angst, you know, closing time is this song that it feels like a, like a slightly more grown up type song. You know, right. you at least have to be going to bars, you know, to, to relate to that song. Um, Has there been like a Chris Young, like type interpolation of that song yet? I feel like there's been, it pops the, up a lot in pop culture, you know, to go back to Grantland, the first story, <laughs> I, first story I ever wrote for Grantland was about closing time, oh, and shit. I interviewed and I interviewed Dan Wilson, and it was just talking about the cultural uh, durability of that song. Like it's come up in a lot of different contexts, uh, in, t- in different TV shows and in movies, and you know, you talk about Dan Wilson getting the bag for Adele, and you know, he wrote something about you and a bunch of other. He also like worked on. That Dixie Chicks record, uh, right. Long Way Home or whatever, um, that won all the Grammys. So he got the bag from that. But I think Closing Time, if that was his only claim to fame, he would probably be pretty comfortable. Yeah, I he'd be like from, the new Radicals guy, you know? Yeah, from all the syncs that's gotten. And it's still a song uh, that's got to be like a top 10 CVS jam <laughs> of all time. Especially yeah. like if like I wonder if you work at CVS, if you actually play Closing Time at Closing Time. Hell no. You play, if you're anything like me when I worked retail jobs like that, you put on like DMX or Death Grips just to get the customers the fuck out of there.
we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So I'm like really happy to talk about this particular album because, um, you know, I think maybe when we do indie casties later this year, we'll bring up like the Shaquille O'Neal meme. I'm sorry I wasn't familiar with your game. Um, George Clanton is an artist I see kind of pop up here and there because, you know, he, I think he put on that festival that got criticized for having John Mouse on it this year. But, um, you know, of course, for the mo- for a couple of years, I'm like, wait, no, it's not George Clinton, it, the guy who was in P-Funk or the Mortal Kombat soundtrack guy that we've mentioned. Um, you know, like, I, I, I think he was like maybe Vaporwave or something like that, um, you know, like kind of Altered Zones-esque stuff. And so he did an album with uh, Nick Hexum from 311 a few years ago that I saw some people were into just because, you know, that's the sort of thing that you, we have to applaud. Um, and so, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, not a hell of a lot going on musically. So I figured, why not? I'll fucking give this a shot. Um, turns out he's, like, not Vaporwave, like James Ferraro or any of that. He's more like an Urban Outfitters Chill Wave, like 2012-2013 era on this new album of his, which, it's called Ooh Rap Aya. I'm imagining that's how it's pronounced phonetically. But if you're the type of person who, like, A, remembers the name of the second Washed Out album, and B, that it was actually pretty good, you're going to love this shit. Um, he has a guest uh, vocal from Hatchie, which is another artist I brought up in a previous episode, who does that kind of Urban Outfitters, shoegazy sort of thing. Like, I bring up Urban Outfitters not because I've been there in the past 10 years, but because uh, I think of it as like buying the second best coast album on vinyl, like that era. Like that's the kind of, um, you know, sync bumper music I can be into. So it might sound like damning with fate praise, but if we're going to compare this album, to fucking paracosm, you know, that's like a seal. That's an, that, that's a seal of approval for me. Wait, that's the second washout. I thought it was within you without you. Was the so life of leisure was an EP. Ah, so that's the full album. With You, Without You is the proper album. Paracosm, okay. produced again by Ben H. Allen, best known for Meriwether Post Pavilion and Halcyon Digest, and Youth Lagoon's Wondrous Bug House. Uh, that production is super 2013. Uh, that's what George Clanton is doing. Ooh, rap, ah, yeah. Don't make me say it again. <laughs> Ben H. Allen, man. I haven't heard that name in a while. Apparently he's doing like Walk the Moon records now. And uh, that whole maybe thing. I need to fucking check those out. It's like yeah. how Dave Friedman, it's like you'd find out like Dave Friedman was like doing an album for like this alt rock band that you've never heard of. And I'll just like give it a shot because, hey man, I like I liked those Flaming Lips records. Now I'm going to, I'm going to get involved with this Ben H. Allen. Uh, if, if Walk the Moon's doing some shit, look. Uh, they liked, uh, Gnarls Barkley. Well, I didn't really either, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. No, he was the man back then. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about a documentary that, uh, actually was, it premiered in December and I didn't hear a word about it until someone tweeted about it this week and I, I was inspired to check it out. It's a four part documentary about Phil Spector and it's just called Spector and it was on Showtime, but now Showtime is, I think, Paramount Plus. So you got to get that 
streaming service uh, if you want to see this. But I, I, I think it's worth the money. I, I, I've been really sucked into it. And again, you know, for those who don't know, Phil Spector was this legendary record producer in the 60s and 70s, famous for working with a lot of girl groups. Uh, he wrote Be My Baby. He wrote The Do Run Run. Actually, he didn't write that, but he produced it. A lot of big hits in that vein. And then he just became an insane person. Just hard drinking, lots of drugs, carrying a lot of guns around. Basically just like a terrible human being. Yes. And he ended up going to jail because he shot a woman in his house in the early 2000s. And then he actually died in prison. Uh, was that last year that he died? Like I think it was a year or two ago that he died. Yeah. Um, and I'm just so sucked into this movie. It's sort of like part biography of Phil Spector and part like true crime like mm. how he ended up meeting the woman that he killed like he didn't really know her really at all she just was like in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's just such an interesting guy like again not a good person he's a terrible person but definitely somebody that I can watch like a four hour movie about mm. uh, just he's so messed up and he's just such an interesting character and uh, I just think for music documentaries, this is one of the better ones I've seen uh, recently. So again, I think it just goes to show books about terrible people, mm-hmm. movies about terrible people, not endorsing their behavior, but you know they are very interesting specimens of humanity. And I, this movie about Phil Spector, again called Spector, I think bears that out. So I don't know. If you feel like you want another streaming service... Pony up for Paramount Plus. I think you will enjoy this movie. You can watch Top Gun Maverick again. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Uh, you know, shill for Paramount Plus, but it's it's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, before we close, before we close out, like just so we end it on a more positive note, do you want to know the last album that Ben H. Allen produced? What's that? Maximo Park in 2021. That's remembering some guys. So. Uh, we can remember some terrible guys, and we can remember uh, some guys who had like three or four good songs in 2005 when rock and roll peaked with There you go. Apply some pressure. That's right. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 